At the intersection of vision, technology, and strategy, you will find the secrets to unlocking the world's most ambitious digital experiences. Join us on Reshape Digital as we seek out the groundbreaking ideas that are reshaping the digital landscape. Hello and welcome to Reshape Digital. Today's episode is brought to you by Open Software, Canada's fastest growing digital agency. My name is Chris Lico, And I'm Stephen Boucher. And today we're talking about usability testing, in particular using artificial intelligence to improve usability testing. So uh, let me set the stage here by reading an excerpt from an Apple computer developer manual from 1982. Um, open quote, 95% of the stumbling blocks are found by watching the body language of the users. Watch for squinting eyes, hunched shoulders, shaking heads, and deep heartfelt sighs. When, when a user hits a snag, he will assume it is on account if he is not too bright. He will not report it. He will hide it. Do not make assumptions about why a user became confused. Ask him. You will often be surprised to learn that the user thought the program was doing at the time he got lost. Close quote. <laughs> so it, there, there's a lot to unpack here. It's, I actually admire the thoughtfulness of it. Uh, first of all, there, there's nothing wrong with it. I like that there's a very human focus that I appreciate, and it's well thought out. The user is uh, is considered, right? Uh, but reading between the lines here, there are three problems. One, it's lacking in objectivity. Two, it consume, this approach consumes a lot of resources, getting human test subjects as well as human evaluators to observe their body language. And three, and perhaps most importantly, the approach today isn't all that different. It sounds a lot like uh, a description of uh, watching my grandparents use um, devices. <laughs> it's funny because um, a, a lot of, you know, I actually troubleshoot for my family members from time to time, and I'm not even that technical, but watching their behavior when they try to do something is remarkable because we've, we have these kind of ingrained patterns of how we use technology. Mm-hmm. And watching someone who didn't kind of grow up with technology trying to use it actually reveals certain patterns that you'd never find That's any other true. way, right? Yeah. It, it sounds like what you're describing is this this habit of ours that we ascribe a failure to ourselves rather than to the technology. To us, technology is infallible. And so as a user, it's humiliating to admit that something went wrong. Absolutely. And uh, you're so right, actually. People who are born, I guess, more recently in the, in the digital age, they do uh, ascribe, you know, the fault of the technology to themselves. And uh, whereas, you know, there's the stereotype of the, the, the grumpy grandpa who's yelling at his, uh, his iPad or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of pride. I, I, it's, it's quite interesting, but it's very true. And it's another one of these gaps in usability testing that uh, need to be acknowledged when we're uh, looking at new approaches to usability testing, and in particular, as we're going to discuss, using artificial intelligence to fill the gaps. Now, of course, there have been technological improvements in usability, usability evaluation since 1982, when that excerpt was written. Right. Outside of structured testing environments where human subjects are still employed, Many tools are measuring easily quantifiable usability metrics, such as rage clicks. You know, there are tools that can detect if you're angrily clicking. Right. Uh, excessive mouse hovering and circling. And, of course, we are all familiar with the, uh, with the bounce rate. <sighs> the only problem, you know, you might be thinking, uh, what's the skinny, Vinny? I, you know, this is pretty, uh, this is pretty uh, 
quite an improvement over pure human testing. Right. But while methods have improved, they're not intelligent. Not saying they're dumb, but the latest research shows that we can take this a heck of a lot further using artificial intelligence. I suppose with the commonly available technology, like the, the type that will track uh, users' behavior on your site, really all you're doing is you're having a computer collect the data and a human is still observing it. Yes. It's not all that different than the test that was run in 1982 because at the end of the day, you might not see the person's face or their shoulders or their head while they're using the website, but you still see what they're doing and, and you can infer mm-hmm. a lot of information like where their eyes are on the page, where they're clicking or where they're hovering. Um, based on their their mouse hover, you can say, okay, they're reading this content now and now they're clicking here and they think that this should be clickable, but it's not. And so it's interesting because we obviously you can collect a lot more data, but at the end of the day, someone still has to sit down and watch those user journeys and and look at the heat maps and actually evaluate. Absolutely. As far as I know, there's no way yet of uh, collecting data on how many heartfelt sighs occur (laughs) over over, uh, a duration of time. You probably buy that data from Amazon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they've got it all. So, Chris, how do you think biases play a role in usability testing and the effectiveness of usability testing? Well, I, I think one of the things is kind of the small team effect, right? If you have a small team of developers and you want to evaluate your usability, it's likely that the person running the test and evaluating the results is also somebody who worked on the website, right? right? So how do you get that, um, call it unbiased even if it's not third party, that unbiased evaluator that's actually going to look at the results and and hopefully not shrug it off and say, oh, they just don't know how to use what I designed. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, that's one of the biggest barriers to usability testing, whether it's what you described in 1982 or the or the modern technology that's available. At the end of the day, the people who are evaluating the results of the tests are stakeholders in in the technology that's being evaluated and so you're never going to get unbiased results from a human in fact you may not even get unbiased results from a third party you know the current solution to that now is basically getting a third party you know some uh, company that specializes in usability testing they can provide test subjects to you uh, pretty sure that's one of the ways you can make extra cash online I've heard that's a that's a thing you can do yeah but one of the problems with this is doing it at scale, right? You can test these certain web pages or templates, but get going beyond that, you can't really construct a set of principles around that. You can't really do that across uh, multiple different pages, and it actually gets more and more expensive the more you test and less efficient. So that's one of the problems that artificial intelligence in usability testing is looking to solve, uh, doing it more accurately and more cheaply and um, this is based on training these advanced neural networks to simulate the decision-making of these human test subjects. Of course, based off of initial data collected from them, but then taking it and training itself uh, more and more based off of these predefined uh, weighted criteria. Right. So I guess the challenge is that because the neural network has to be built off something, there could be implicit biases based on the selected group that you're building the neural network on. But at the end of the day, 
it's the only way to do it at scale. And it's also the only way to actually evaluate all the possible scenarios. You know, they're, uh, they're making a lot of progress in this regard. AI researchers have... Um, so here's, here's a good example that, I, that came out in April 2019 in a, in a study. AI researchers, they were evaluating the... Ta- finding ways to evaluate the tapability of elements on a mobile screen uh, using artificial intelligence. So this is obviously a very common problem. You know, right. you, th- you think something is tappable, you put your, I put my big fat finger on it and it does nothing. And, or sometimes it's uh, vice versa. I tap something I did not intend on tapping. I was, right. you know, so this is a huge barrier to usability on mobile. So what these researchers decided to do was create this adva- uh, this uh, artificial neural network to uh, distinguish a tappable object versus an untappable object based on a large uh, data set collected previously. So the tool is called TapShoe, and it actually achieve, achieved pretty impressive accuracy. Uh, cons- and, it was, and they tested it against an actual user group of 270 users afterwards, and it had about 90% accuracy. So they agreed about 90% of the time on what was tappable and what wasn't tappable. And over time, TapShoe was even able to uh, arrive at conclusions, right, that can inform further uh, future designs. So, for instance, they figured out what types of texts were uh, uh, considered more tappable, what colors were more tappable, shapes. And this is all based off of, uh, it wasn't the, it wasn't the uh, users, the user group that arrived at these conclusions. It was the machine itself, which is quite interesting. It sounds like... There's almost there's applications beyond usability, right? Because what you're describing with like colors and shapes and things like that, I mean that's all kind of conversion optimization stuff as well, right? Yeah. Um, we've we've talked in in the past on this podcast about how people use different colors to appeal to different demographics, and you're more likely to click a purchase button if it's a certain color, but that also depends on your own demographic profile, mm-hmm. and so. It's almost like you you have takeaways that are are purely functional, which is like, does this work as intended or not? And then it's obviously the accessibility factor of like, is this doing what the user wants it to do? But then even a step beyond that, it's almost sounding like there's takeaways from this neural network that are able to give you insights into what's going to convert more highly. Absolutely. And it's truly remarkable, too, when you consider how tools like these can actually speed up the design process in the first place, right? We're talking about a tool that was used to evaluate uh, usability after the fact, but imagine this tool being employed in the design phase itself. It would speed the process, greater accuracy, uh, fewer uh, feedback loops, which while important, you know, do consume resources and time. Uh, I think it could really... uh, uh, and it's objective too. That's important, you know. Um, like we like we just said before, a lot you know users have uh, different biases. You know, especially if you're if you're an agency and you're designing for a client, um, you know, making sure you have a, a truly objective set of users as opposed to someone who's super excited about the project or it's it's fitting their specific needs as opposed to you know whatever the user is. But uh, I suppose that's another challenge with the artificial intelligence it's, is, is designing it so that it can actually represent these different groups as opposed to just representing a singular group. 
because every group has their own biases, right. right? Like the old people versus the young people. So that's one of the challenges I foresee. So do you think that given that these AI technologies can actually provide us with insights into usability, do you think that that's kind of one of the last barriers before AI can just build websites for us? You know what? I think so. AI is writing music that we think uh, uh, sounds good to us, right? Right. You know, and uh, I, th- I think paintings too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So why not um, just building websites for us? We've talked in previous podcasts about how Squarespace and Wix are, uh, you know, it's are uh, changing the uh, web development game. Right. Well, soon they're going to be knocked out by these robots. <laughs> Either that or they're going to implement the AI because they can see the writing on the wall. Oh, that too. Yeah, actually. I think that's a scary prospect as an agency because, you know, historically agencies, you know, their bread and butter is their professional services. Here's what we know. Here's what we can do that nobody else can. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you look at a designer that specializes in UX and says, you know what, I'm I'm the person to go to when you need to know how your users are going to use your website and how we can optimize it for the way that they're going to use the website. And suddenly this AI is able to make all those same recommendations. I mean, you could argue the easy part is building it. Right. So after realizing this episode is rapidly falling outside of our wheelhouse, I promptly kicked Chris out of the room and invited Tiana, a designer at Open, and Ben, a web developer, to uh, provide some more insight on the issue. How's it going, guys? Hey, what's up? Good, how are you? Great, thanks. I'm stressed because we're talking about <laughs> artificial intelligence potentially replacing us. What do you think about that? I don't know. I, I don't think it's near enough in the future where we have to worry about it, but maybe that's like an ignorant viewpoint of it. I, I, I feel like in our industry, we have clients with such niche um, issues and problems that something like an AI, I feel like couldn't, couldn't grasp it so quickly. Like someone ha- would have to harness it. And I, I'm not sure who's doing that, but maybe, again, maybe it's an ignorant view, but maybe I think we're, we're okay right now. I would agree with that, but I would say inevitably, um, most of our operations and the way, you know, our capacity in general will be replaced by AI eventually. Um, as of right now, like Ben mentioned, probably it's not as prevalent in our daily lives, but we are constantly being controlled, I would say, and our decisions are influenced by technology, whether we like it or not. So what sort of processes do you think will be replaced by AI first? Like when you think about what you do at Open or, you know, uh, in the development process, what do you think will be first replaced? I feel like maybe development would go before design. I I disagree because we have... Interesting. We've already, like, if you look at... Um, this is a really bad example, but Wix, like, building your own website, like, that basically renders my job a little bit obsolete because it's no longer, you know, anybody can create their own website, and there is some flexibility and customization that's already built in there. So I would say design would go before, for sure. Hmm. Unless, you know, someone, you know, is 
is really looking for something unique and yeah well um, that's what I'm, I'm assuming more aligned with our kind of clients who are looking for something more unique who are looking for something that better fits their branding not like an easy template they want something unique that's where I think create I feel like for an AI creativity is harder than than just I need to do x y and z which is kind of more development like development is more I need to connect this to this or I need to make this look like that mm-hmm. and I feel like that's an easier transition than like it creatively thinking of something okay but uh, then again who knows so you're thinking that the audience that tools like Squarespace and Wix appeal to, they're probably going to, I guess, realize the benefits of artificial intelligence before more enterprise clients because they currently require custom coding as opposed to these cookie-cutter websites. So you think uh, AI will first kind of push out these kind of cookie-cutter websites and then... templates, basic templates. The more simplistic. There's already data that says, you know, for example, when we do A-B testing, like what kind of button works best what sells best there's already research and a ton of data on that already yeah like if i'm like a mom and pop store Mm -hmm. that website's built built a hundred thousand times exactly you know what i mean so like i feel like that one would come a lot quicker than maybe something like unique like our kind of enterprise clients so it's almost like uh, it would be like a canary in a coal mine when we see Squarespace and Wix, they start to, either they go out of the business or perhaps they themselves adopt um, artificial intelligence in their in their website builds, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. How would you pivot in response to a, a shift in the market like that as a digital agency that specializes in enterprise Drupal projects? Well, it'd be adapt or die, yeah. right? I have like, to do right. something else. How do I... outbeat the machine kind of thing yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) or find something niche you know there's if there's something that it's not covering then that's what we got to do sure thing yeah fight the robots (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no we love the robots thank you robots yeah (laughs) yeah you want to you want to appease your robot overlords now before they come back with a vengeance so here's another here's one more question for you in terms of uh creativity so doing something innovative now we know artificial intelligence it trains itself based off of uh, large amounts of data that are collected constantly learning constantly learning so do you think it would come up with like a you know the innovative stuff like in other words uh create its own demand for something like it'll create something new that no one's ever seen before and go and make people go wow i want that or do you think it really it's more reactive like it reacts to things that already exist and builds on that well, wasn't there this thing called, like, Google Dreams or something? Do you guys remember that? No. It was basically, like, nightmare fuel. Like, Google oh. would try and make, like, paintings or something, and it'd be just... Well, it'd it has look this like massive knowledge base, yeah. right? So it's at some point, it will have gained so much knowledge that it will be able to generate new ideas faster than humans can. So you think uh, AI could write Shakespeare? Why not? If it has access to all of Shakespeare's... Damn it. Well, currently, we, we've seen stuff like that. And well, it, and it gets I'm little, not, I'm not I'm looking at Steven, and he's like, wait, stop destroying me. <laughs> I, I have to say, I pulled you two in here hoping you'd cheer me up, but... No, uh, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic, <laughs> and I'm a pessimistic. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. Oh. No. 
Now, I'm, I'm waiting for like my tiny house with no electricity in the middle of nowhere where I just like farm vegetables. You know what? If that is how okay. you choose to live, that's fine. It's pretty peaceful. But they'll probably be able to track you somehow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. All right. So, <laughs> so we went very, ter- very Terminator-esque. <laughs> so we went from usability testing to the end of the world, it seems. But that's, that's okay. That's what podcasts are all about. We, we uh, you know. Divert. We divert and we go in some interesting directions. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Was there anything else you wanted to add? Chris over there? No? Thank you both so much for joining us today, Tiana and Ben. So let's recap what we learned today. Well, there's some really cool stuff happening with artificial intelligence in terms of usability testing, and uh, this can really speed the um, design of websites. It can make websites more friendlier for for humans, but uh, unfortunately, as we just saw, it may... um, you know, replace us. But, uh, well, we won't dwell on that right now. Let's focus on the the usability improvements and just uh, embrace and accept those. So uh, now that the adults are done talking, uh, I've been invited back into the room to say thank you for listening to the first half of today's episode. Uh, We always appreciate your interest and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.